This audio production is brought to you by TheBestDayEver.com, David Wolf's premium longevity member site. Welcome, everyone. This is your host, Lucian Gauthier, and I am here with Mark Robert Waldman, and he's going to be joining us for our upcoming Longevity Now conference February 7th through February 9th at the Hyatt Regency in Orange County, California, hosted by none other than David Wolf. And we've got some great speakers, such as Dr. Joseph Mercola. He's going to be our keynote speaker, Dr. William Davis, Dr. Arby DeGray. And Mark Robert Waldman is the author and co-author of several amazing books, Why We Believe What We Believe, Words Can Change Your Brain, Born to Believe in how God changes your brain. And he's here today to lay out his really remarkable, not only philosophy, but the scientific evidence of how what we do with our thoughts, our emotions, how they affect neurological pathways in our brain. So thank you so much for joining us. Delighted to be here. So my first question for you, Mr. Waldman, is what is the sort of underpinning philosophy? I know you've written several books. What's the sort of core philosophy or understanding that sort of acts as the foundation for a lot of the specific points and protocols in your various works? Well, what we have been able to discern from our brain scan studies of all types of different people who are practicing different types of meditation or doing affirmations or thinking positive thoughts or negative thoughts or simply doing an action in slow motion versus the normal way in which we do activities, every action we have, every thought we have, every feeling we have has a specific neurological pathway and that we can use our thoughts, we can use our words, we can use our feelings, we can use our images to not only temporarily change neurological and structural functions in the brain, we can permanently alter them in ways that will utterly change the way other people relate to us and react to us, and we can even change to the point that the world that we see is totally different than the world that we used to believe in. So it sounds like we're a radio in a sense, that we're giving off signals, we're receiving signals, and it's a kind of a two-way street, which is one of the things that was most remarkable in kind of your, your video presentations, and that what we're thinking, how how we are thinking our thoughts and how we're communicating those thoughts not only has an impact on us, but also the receiver, the people listening to us, the people who hear the words that we say. Can you talk about that reciprocity and how that works? Yes. Most of the time, and I'm going to begin with the notion that when we speak to the other person, we're not even paying attention to our own thoughts, to our own bodies, nor are we really paying attention very fully to what the other person is saying, and we don't know how to listen very well. Now, the interesting thing about language is that if we do not develop a word-based language in the first few years of life, our brains will remain so immature, it'll be like we're in a state of autism. So words are absolutely essential for us to grow some of the most important connections and parts in our brain. And yet, nobody ever teaches us that words, when we look at the whole list of the eight most essential ways to communicate, that words are number eight. They're on the bottom of the list. So, for example, the way in which we make eye contact with another person will tell the other person within a matter of seconds whether we are trustworthy or untrustworthy. And the type of facial expression that we have plays an incredible role as well. And then third, the tone of voice. So, for example, a person can taste a fake smile on their face and even try to 
speak very soothingly or cunningly to another individual. But because that expression is a lie, a deceit, the other person, if they're paying close attention to her face, will immediately see a disconnect. Neurologically, we'll see that the facial expression does not match the tone of voice. And suddenly, we become distrustful of that individual. And then, our brains also use the other person's hand and body gestures to build a sense of meaning behind those particular words. Now, here's a really cool thing. Most people, when they speak, have not thought through what they want to say at first. And so they'll kind of ramble on and on and on. An individual tends to speak for about two or three minutes before they stop and pause and listen to what the other person says. Well, here's one of the things that we found out about how communication works in the brain. Your brain can only remember about 10 words for 10 seconds max. So if you speak for two or three minutes, the other person is most likely going to remember the wrong 10 words. And of course, that frustrates the other individual. That's where the famous spouse is, you weren't listening to me. And the response is, you were talking too much. My poor little brain could only hang on to 10 words. Which 10 words are really important? And so we take this neuroscientific evidence that consciousness can only hold a tiny bit of information in it at any one time. And then we develop strategies that can rapidly teach people how to become better communicators. So for example, we'll ask people, and I'll do this, I'll be doing this at the workshop, you hold up two hands in front of your face, in front of the other person's face, and you count out your words with each finger. I have to say what I mean in 10 words or, whoops, <laughs> the 11th word would have been less. And when we do this in an experiential workshop, when I guide, I can guide a thousand people through this exercise together, literally within three or four minutes, everyone begins to speak more intimately, more directly. Stories begin to emerge in the dialogue that bring tears to people's eyes. And we bring this into the boardroom and we insist, look, you must communicate your basic idea in 10 words or less in one sentence and then everyone else will respond. So if the person says 10 words and you don't quite get it, it's easy to say, could you explain a little bit further? What do you mean by that? And when we bring this into conflict resolution and mediation circles, we can solve problems that most mediators might take uh, two hours to do with a highly conflicted couple and solve a problem in 10 minutes. So these are examples that the way in which we speak can be highly improved if we just apply 12 simple strategies. That's fantastic. I think a lot of people do get frustrated that they are trying to communicate to a person or a group of people and they feel misunderstood or they're not getting their point across. So this seems to be a great technology to use to increase effectiveness, efficiency, and most importantly, the results that you want to see from your communication. Well, it goes even further than that. For example, we found out that if you find the right word... You can act and speak that word and even just repeat it like a mantra to yourself over and over and over again. You can actually turn on 1,200 stress-reducing genes in your brain, 
1,200 just from repeating a single word. That is unbelievable. And all of these are documented studies that have been published in various deemed peer-reviewed journals. And I have to ask you, Mr. Waldman, how did you sort of get turned on to this area of science and research? Is this something that you've always had an interest in? How did you sort of stumble into this, if you did stumble? Well, I stumbled into it by accident in my first year in college at UC Santa Cruz when somebody handed me this little white pill and they said, you're going to have a wonderful time with this pill. (laughs) It was LSD, and I did not have a wonderful time with that pill because nobody told me what a hallucination was. And I thought I was losing my mind, and I was, you know, and I I thought I was going crazy. And so I vowed to stay away from all those type of psychedelic substances. But I found myself researching the mechanisms of hallucination. And in that process, I discovered that what people were doing were exploring the nature of human consciousness itself. They wanted to know what happens when you shift from everyday consciousness into an altered state of consciousness. So I began to explore the different types of alternative psychologies and alternative spiritualities that were very popular in the 1970s and 80s. You know, and we tried everything. You would try Reiki and therapy. You would sit there and envision somebody you don't like in a chair and beat them to death with an imaginary stick. And then you would send loving kindness thoughts to these individuals. And this is the period where, like, neuro-linguistic programming was invented and a lot of experimental therapies. But today, most of those therapies turn out to be no better than the placebo effect. In fact, one of the most amazing areas of research that we've been doing is what is the placebo effect? It turns out that the placebo effect in medicine is getting stronger. How is it possible that an inert substance can become more powerful? Half the drugs that are out there today will no longer beat the placebo effect, which means they can't get FDA approval. And so we define placebo as your belief. And we've been able to identify six categories of placebo that a person can use to strengthen their immune system. So, for example, even if the practice has no scientific or medical value, if you believe that it will improve your health, it actually stimulates the immune system of your body. And here's something else that's really cool, and this was uh, discovered by Ted Kapchuk at Harvard University. He was doing a sham acupuncture study, because we now know it doesn't even matter where you put the needles, the person is still going to get better. And if you do a sham experiment like this, and you're dealing with somebody's physical pain, or you're attempting to speed up the healing process of the body it turns out that 35% of the individuals will get better from this, which is about the same as placebo. You're not really doing anything. Still, the person believes that they are being healed. And in terms of like knee surgery, we now know that fake knee surgery is literally as effective as real knee surgery. What in the world is going on? Well, one of the things that Ted discovered is that if the practitioner talks to the client with a warm voice like I am doing now. You slow your voice down, you drop it down a little bit so it's lower and lower and lower. This warm, soothing voice literally doubles the healing effect of the body. It went up to 65%. That's utterly amazing that you can use the tone of your voice to increase the healing power 
of not only your own body, but of somebody else's body as well. So these are the strategies that we've built into our communication um, protocols, and these are the strategies that we're teaching people. So we call it NeuroWisdom 101. What are the fastest way, what are 60-second exercises that you can do that will change your brain and transform your life? One of the things I saw in your TED Talk video was the sampling of the brain activity when we cultivate higher thoughts, beliefs, or we think about God or peace. Can you talk about what you've seen in terms of the brain scanning and mapping when it comes to developing specifically thoughts around God, spirituality, higher consciousness, prayer, things of that nature? Well, we took it a step further. I mean, our research did begin. We're the people who do the brain scans of nuns, Buddhists, Pentecostals speaking in tongues, atheists praying to God, individuals doing affirmations. And the first thing that we discovered is that it didn't matter whether you believe or disbelieve in God. In other words, the Buddhist meditators who were focusing on pure consciousness, we were seeing exactly the same type of changes in their brain as the Franciscan nuns who we're wanting to simply feel closer to Jesus. And so we've done Sufi practitioners, we've looked at a lot of different studies, and it turns out that if you focus on a value that you hold very high and dear, and this is a very interesting experience to do because this is the first homework assignment that I give to my executive MBA students at Loyola Marymount University. And what an executive MBA student is, these are busy executives running $10 million companies. And I give them this opening assignment. I say, for the next 10 days, once each morning, all I want you to do is to ask yourself, what is your deepest innermost value. What is your deepest innermost value? And we ask the person to do a little bit of deep relaxation and stretching beforehand because this retrains the brain to be more sensitive to the way in which we think. And we'll oftentimes get responses from students because we'll then ask them 10 days later, 10 questions. What was your initial reaction to this? And my favorite response, we get one every year is, what kind of BS, and they're not referring to brain science, what kind of BS is this for an accounting class? But by the third or fourth day, these individuals, and the last time it was somebody who was a career military individual, so this is even being used now in the ranks of the CIA, they find that their stress levels for the entire day go down. And they may pick a word like love or peace or integrity or concentration. It doesn't matter what the word is as long as that word symbolizes a deep integral value of that individual. These value-oriented words, your highest personal value, your deepest relationship value, your most important communication value, this is your own inner spirituality. This is your own religion. And so we found that we can help a person bring themselves into a value-oriented perspective. And we could take two people. We can take an atheist and a fundamentalist. We can take somebody from the Tea Party, pair them up with the most liberal individual you can find. And if you ask them what their deepest personal, relational, and communication value is, everyone tends to support everyone else's deepest value. We've transcended politics. We've transcended theology. And now, if you remain true to those values, you have a conversation that interrupts conflicts before they can even begin. 
And this was so important that uh, we were able to have it published, for example, in the Journal of Executive Education. And to date, over a quarter of a million people around the world have been practicing this one single exercise. That value word, that one word that you come up with, that's the word that turns on 1,200 stress-reducing genes. And one of the reasons why we believe you're going to fit in so well with our audience is we have so much focus on superfood nutrition, super herb nutrition, eating food to support our immune system, kidneys, detoxifying our liver. There's so much emphasis on that. But it does seem to always come back to the master switch or the master controller of our body, which is our brain. Do you see it working in a similar way, which is we have those master switches, our glands and our hormones really being focused in our brain and, and that's the command center for the rest of our body and through your special technology it is a supreme way to accomplish not only health but longevity as well. And we've also applied that specifically to the foods we eat. We use the same communication strategies for when you sit down in front of a plate of food. And so, for example, we know that in speaking, if you slow down your words, I mean, a New Yorker is going to speak about 250 words per hour, per minute, per second, or whatever it is. They're going to just keep going on and on and on and on like this. And it'll rev up the audience. I mean, you, I mean, the first thing, you don't, you don't want to spend all your time just speaking really, really slowly or you'll put the whole audience to sleep. But when you do slow down your speaking, comprehension and relaxation increases in the other person's brain. When you slow down your speaking, you make a better connection with the other person. Well, guess what? The same thing happens when you slow down your eating. If you were to put a plate of food in front of you, and you consciously and deliberately, and this is using mindfulness practice, slowly take your fork, choose one piece of food that interests you, pick it up in slow motion, spend 30 seconds smelling it, savoring it. It's for, you know, for example, if I was to hand you a $600 glass of wine, are you going to chug it? <laughs> no. You're going to drink it really, really slowly. What in the world is this? Well, the problem is, is that we don't do this when we eat. Most of the time, we're just eating our memories. We see a piece of food that we think would be very delicious to eat. We pop it into our mouth. We don't think about it. We're talking to somebody else. We're virtually eating our memories. But if you slow down and you take a small piece of that food and you hold it on your tongue for 20 seconds, because this is how long it takes the brain to register all of the flavors and identify all of the nutrients in that single bite of food, you end up, the food bursts, it comes alive. You end up eating less food and enjoying it more. And that's called mindful eating. So we've taken our brain scan studies on this and we've developed a weight loss program of mindful eating based upon how the same types of strategies can be applied to virtually every aspect of your life. Communication, food, sleeping, exercise. You can even exercise in slow motion and you'll get more benefit from it. That's really interesting. And I know you've been developing a new series of protocols. You've got new research coming out. You've called it Neuro Wisdom 101. You're going to be sharing that with our audience members. Can you talk a little, little bit about like the new research that you've been involved in and, and where it's heading and the direction that it's taking, not only in the present, but also for the future? Yes. As I said, as I think I said earlier, uh, for the last six months, what we have done 
Nobody has been able to really capture what is human consciousness, but we now actually know what human consciousness is. It is created by the brain, and it's created from the moment we wake up by things that interest us. Curiosity creates consciousness. It releases dopamine when we see something new. The dopamine gets released from the nucleus acubens. It moves forward into our frontal lobes where consciousness is literally born. And this gives us the ability to consciously and voluntarily go after those things we desire the most. If you put a mouse in a maze and you put all kinds of odd, unusual things, it's going to gather those things and store it up in the corner. So every creature knows that new things could be of value down the road. So now we have a mechanism to say, okay, we need to build more pleasure, more creativity into our lives because the dopamine that's released from this is going to give birth to consciousness. It takes us from this instinctual level of awareness where we can build new habits, the habitual level of awareness. It brings us into everyday consciousness where we can go after our goals and dreams and desires. But we looked at all 31,000 studies relating to human consciousness that goes back to 1870, and we were able to put them into six categories. And the first three I just mentioned, instinctual, habitual, everyday consciousness, intentional, where we choose to take the actions we want to take. But we've overlooked one of the most important levels of consciousness, which is creative consciousness. When we've concentrated on a particular activity in three or four minutes, we actually use up all of the neurochemicals in our frontal lobes that help us to remain productive. Our brain has to go take a little brief nap. It has to daydream. Technically, it's called mind-wandering, and it turns out that mind-wandering is one of the most important things we need to do. Without this level of daydreaming, we cannot move to the next level of consciousness where true knowledge, insight, and invention takes place. So... It's like if you and I think about when we were in school, can you imagine the school teacher saying, I want you to do this math problem for the next 10 minutes. Now, kick back in your chair and take a nap. Go daydream. Just follow. Just let your mind go wherever it wants to go. This is basically your brain consolidating the information in its own language, in its own imagery, into long-term memory. And this is what Einstein used whenever he got stuck with a problem. He would just go do something different. He'd just kick back. He'd relax. He'd just watch where the mind wandered. And that's where those aha experiences begin to emerge. For a child, it's the place where both fantasies and nightmares are created. So we also know something very, very interesting. Although the brain creates consciousness, the moment consciousness is created, those same thoughts Positive and negative, it doesn't matter if they're real or false. All, I mean, all forms of worry is not something that's happening in the present moment. We worry about something that we think may happen in the future. It has nothing to do with this moment right now. And yet, other parts of the brain react to that as if we're having our life threatened in that moment. This is why worry, worries and thoughts are one of the most dangerous things that we have. For us to ruminate on the fact that something may happen tomorrow is going to destroy our brain today. So we teach people, and I'll be teaching everyone who comes to this program, how to quickly 
create what I call a crap board. And crap stands for conflicts, resistances, anxieties, and other problems that you have. And you write down every worry, self-doubt, low self-esteem problem that you think you have. You put it on a sheet of paper. And then we ask a person to deeply relax, go into this creative form of consciousness, and then we move them up to the next level, which is self-reflective awareness. And all they have to do is to gaze at their crap board and all of these words, and the brain does something amazing. It disassociates from it. It sees all of these words on a piece of paper, and it no longer feels it has to worry inside of its own head. So you take your crap board, you post it on the wall, and you'll find that 90% of your worries, fears, and anxieties have literally disappeared in 20 minutes or less. And this is incredible. And then as you look at that kind of list, you begin to observe your thoughts without reacting to them. And then your mind shifts to noticing that you're observing yourself, noticing yourself. And there is a fundamental collapse. And at that particular point, you have an enlightened experience. You begin to realize that you are not your thoughts. You are not your feelings. And that's an incredibly liberating experience. And we've put that all together into a six-hour program, 58 lessons. And that's what we're calling Neuro Wisdom 101. And this is what we're now teaching to MBA students throughout the world. We're teaching it to teachers to teach to others. We've taken it down to the universities in Chile and in Amsterdam and Europe. And so neuroism is the ability to learn how to consciously shift between these six levels of consciousness simply by doing basic 60-second mindfulness training. Thank you so much. That was phenomenal. I've never heard the idea of the crap board. I can't wait to actually engage and start doing that. I'm going to do that this afternoon. That's my that's my project for this afternoon. And for people listening, this has been Mark Robert Waldman. He's going to be joining us at the Longevity Now conference. That's taking place at the Hyatt Regency in Orange County, California, February 7th through February 9th. That's Friday, February 7th to Sunday, February 9th. This is going to be an outstanding event with all of your favorite speakers, David Wolf, Dr. Joseph McCullough, Dr. William Davis, the author of Wheat Belly, Dave Asprey, Joe Salatin. And here speaking with us now, it's been Mark Robert Waldman. He's going to be sharing his phenomenal techniques, NeuroWisdom 101. Thank you so much, Mr. Waldman. It's been phenomenal having you here, and we can't wait to see you at the event. I We'll be delighted to turn on all of those wonderful immune-enhancing genes because some of these exercises will actually add two years to your life. This audio production has been brought to you by TheBestDayEver.com, David Wolf's premium longevity member site.